Ugh. All right, Acts 18. We're going to be in for a, a sermon today. If you have a Bible with you or you can follow along there in the bulletin. Um, we're going to talk about being a Christian and being a church in a pagan place. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I think I just mean it because the Water Boys had a great song about the incarnation called In a Pagan Place. And so I think of it that way. It's a, a, in a place where not so many people are Christians where the gospel of Jesus is less well-known. A place like the city of Corinth, which we're going to look at today in Acts 18, and a place like Tucson as well. Uh, The city where Paul's visiting, is this is as the message of Jesus spreads into Europe. Um, So they're in Greece, they're in Corinth. Um, They had a synagogue there with some Jewish people, but not many. Uh, mostly religiously, they worshiped Aphrodite. They had a huge temple on top of the hill outside of town and a tremendously large trade in temple prostitution in Corinth. Um, but they didn't have a spirituality that constrained people or, or challenged the uh, political status quo or anything. It was kind of a civil religion for the most part in the way that it functioned. But the real issue for people was that they found a way to make life work without God. Um, Cosmopolitan city, a lot of money, a lot of sexual liberation, um, political influence. And, you know, there's the kind of place where if you got enough sense, you can make your life work pretty well. And your sense of need of God isn't all that acute. And that seems to be mostly what you have in the city of Corinth, which uh, a lot of people have found familiar to the places they live in modern day America. That um, I'd say a lot of people, I would say like my parents uh, sort of felt like they were living in Jerusalem, you know, a place where most of the social assumptions lined up with their Christian faith, uh, where the political system seemed to be pretty much lined up with uh, the Christian faith. And so uh, they felt like, you know, God and country and society and school and everything would work together really well. But by the time I was grown, I didn't feel much of that at all. I felt more like I was in Babylon in exile rather than in Jerusalem at home with uh, everyone that agreed with me. Um, Instead, Christianity seemed to be kind of a minority voice and it was costly at times, you know, to talk about your Christian faith or to identify as a Christian on campus. And since then that seems to only have gotten uh, more more pronounced. Um, I think it was easier for my parents to think of their Christian faith and society as kind of a a culture war battlefield, uh, whereas to me it's always looked more like a mission field. I I don't have much hope about any kind of a culture war or its success. Uh, My thought is this is a place where not many people know about the hope of Jesus Christ, really. Um, there's, there are echoes and memories about the Christian faith, but mostly we're talking to people who are less familiar and not immediately persuaded about the Christian faith. And so reading this story in Acts 18 about how the gospel uh, about Jesus came into a city like that is pretty encouraging to me and instructive for us, I think, as we think about what we're trying to do in Tucson Uh, in this church and in our neighborhoods. So that's what we're going to think about today. And uh, let me pray for it first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, come help us and speak to us as we consider your word. Um, 
it's pretty uh, encouraging to us to watch what you did in the city of Corinth, and we'd love to see you do something similar here. So um, help us, teach us, challenge us, and uh, give us yourself. That's the main reason we're here is because we need you and need to know you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 1 of Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I watched, for some reason, an uh, attorney speaking last week about um, how essentially important it is to never speak to the police. <laughs> he was saying this is his advice always. I uh, tested the theory against someone in law enforcement that some of you may know. He seemed to think that there was something to this advice that whether you're guilty or innocent, talking to the police is rarely helpful for you. Many, many things can go wrong. You're not nearly as smart as you think you are, and it would be better for you not to do this. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, hopefully advice you don't need and I won't need for a while. But speaking up just creates trouble for you if you're talking to the police. Um, it feels like that's pretty good advice, too, if you live in a place where not many people are Christians and you are. Like, uh, don't speak up too much. Right? Be afraid and stop talking. It's kind of an instinctive response when you've got a minority view, a view that uh, people find a little angular and challenging in their lives. Um, your life could be more peaceful if you just you know, be, be a little afraid and stop talking. Um, even for Paul, the intrepid, fearless-seeming missionary who's been, you know, stood up in front of philosophers who are mocking him and religious leaders who are beating him and political leaders who are torturing him, in Corinth, he got scared. And Jesus had to come to him and say, don't be afraid and keep speaking. Jesus had to appear to him to keep him from shutting up because he was afraid. And my sense is he's probably a little braver than most of us. And so if he needed to hear that, we probably really need to hear that too. Don't be afraid and keep speaking. 
And we'll talk about some of the reasons he gives uh, as we go through this a little bit and think about the passage. But just, I think it's fair to acknowledge that it's a little bit intimidating to espouse a minority view about anything, but especially uh, when you're persuading people to believe something that's not universally believed, that most people's instincts and assumptions make them think is probably not true. And for you to represent and promote that idea, you know, can be daunting and socially costly for people. So I want to encourage you, for the same reasons that Jesus encouraged Paul, to stay engaged and to not be afraid and to keep speaking uh, as Christians in a place like the place we live. Because it's, uh, it's hard to do the Christian mission in a place where it's not so widely accepted but it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. So let's talk about why it's hard first a little bit. And you probably know this already, but uh, you can just kind of see it in Paul's experience here. The message itself is vexing to people. The Christian message is vexing. Um, a lot of things you could talk about religiously wouldn't bother people. They'd just be happy for you that you found that. They might be interested, like you were talking about a new diet or a new exercise plan, they think, oh, huh, I might try that. That sounds good. But the Christian message has all these sharp angles on it and edges on it and demands that come with it. And so it's always more awkward to talk about it and try to persuade people. Paul goes to the synagogue first, right? And uh, thinking, well, these are people who at least are familiar with, you know, the God of Israel. They know the Old Testament. Um, That's a good place to start. I've got some common ground with them. And uh, they're used to living as weirdos in the culture, right? There aren't many Jewish people there. They, their beliefs are weird. Their ethics are weird. You know, I have people that walk in front of my house every Saturday going to synagogue. And they're dressed in synagogue clothes, definitely. It's a uniform, right? You can tell who they are, what they're doing. And they're used to being, uh, to standing out and feeling odd in our neighborhood as they walk to synagogue. And I imagine it was probably worse for uh, Jews in Corinth to live as cultural oddballs there. And if you're, if you're a part of a movement like Judaism in a place like Corinth, you're inevitably going to perceive yourself to be a, like a moral gatekeeper or a, someone who is uh, out of faithfulness to God holding the line uh, morally, ethically, religiously. And you feel like you're beset all around by all of these uh, temptations and different ideas and attacks that are either overt or covert on your faith. And so it it tends to create a defensiveness, kind of a fortress mentality, which you'd assume they would have. You You think a lot about how do I protect my kids and myself from the problems and temptations and beliefs and ethics of this culture. Um... It's easy to be fearful, easy to be judgmental. You can imagine, you know, it's the kind of setting in which you can get up a good boycott pretty easily. Or you can publish the Jewish Yellow Pages so that we can all just support each other's businesses and, you know, take care of each other while we're hunkered down in this hostile culture. So Paul comes to the synagogue and starts preaching. And he doesn't say, congratulations, thanks for holding the line, thanks for being the stalwarts the pillars of the community, when all around you is going to hell, you're the ones who have stayed strong. Now, he comes in and he says, I need to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah. That was his message at the synagogue, right? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And the implication of that is, 
The Messiah did not come to congratulate you or vindicate you or thank you for holding the moral uh, hard line for him. He came because you needed to be rescued as badly as the prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite needed to be rescued. You're just like them, and you don't have any more hope before God than they do, except in the mercy of Jesus who came to your rescue. Now, that's a vexing message, right? If you see yourself and you wake up in the morning believing yourself to be the stalwart, the uh, strong one, the one who doesn't compromise, the one who's faithful to God and to the Scripture. And you're told that when God intervenes in our world, He came not to congratulate you, but because without the death of the Holy Son of God in your place, that you have no standing with God? Well, you can imagine that message didn't go over very well with them. And uh, they weren't receptive to it, for the most part, at all. So much so that Paul... And what almost sounds like temper uh, goes full Ezekiel on them and says, your blood is on your own heads. I'm the I'm the faithful watchman, like Ezekiel talked about, who blew the trumpet when I saw danger coming. And if you don't listen to the trumpet, that's on you. It's not on me. I'm innocent. I blew the trumpet, which is that's what you say when you're mad (laughs) after your sermon. You know, and uh, Paul says and he shakes the dust off his clothes, which is like an act of. Judgment or an appeal to God for judgment on these people, which is pretty intense. But you understand, it's a vexing message for people who think they're the goodies, not the baddies. And you have a Savior who comes and says, I'm here to rescue baddies. It's the sick who need a physician, not the well, as Jesus said at Matthew's party. And uh, most of the people in the synagogue were like, yeah, well, I'm not sick. Okay, so I don't need that kind of help. Some of them did. Dramatically, a couple of the synagogue rulers wound up converting. So the message is vexing, but also speaking is scary. This makes it hard to live as a Christian in a place where Christianity is less well known. It's just scary to talk about it. Um, That's why Paul had to be told, don't be afraid and keep talking. Because everything in him said, I do feel afraid and I would like to stop talking. And uh, because he'd been through a lot. You know, at this point, it's the end of this long you know, adventure that he's been on, gone a lot of places, and almost everywhere he's been, he's, he's faced trauma. I mean, he's been beaten, he's been tortured, he's been mocked and ridiculed by people that were smart, that, you know, he minded being ridiculed by. He's alone now. He gets to Corinth, and none of his friends are with him. And uh, I don't care who you are, that's hard. And, uh, and apparently he's broke now, too. Like the money that people have given to support his mission trip, the money's run out. So now he, has, he finds Aquila and Priscilla and goes and works with them. They're, it's either leather working or tent making. Even now you hear if a minister has a side job to help pay his bills, you call him a tent making pastor. Um, the outside support hasn't run out for me yet. <laughs> so I'm hoping that the, you know, the graphs will meet at some point here in the church. Because I don't know anything about tents. Or anything else. <laughs> so, <laughs> But he's pretty discouraged. So like he's out of money, he's alone, he's been through a ton. And you know, whatever PTSD you would expect, you've got to think he's, he's pretty shell-shocked by what he's been through. And uh, he gets what he expects, kind of the synagogue, it's kind of what he's faced everywhere. A few people believe, but mostly he gets opposition. And then the other religious people are the... the uh, 
you know, the, those who worship the Greek gods, Aphrodite, Venus, um, those blur together in my mind. But um, they're not interested in a new religion that has all these sharp edges on it. They've got a religion that allows them to be as sexually active and promiscuous as they ever want to be. And uh, who doesn't want a religion like that? All right. So he's facing a lot of obstacles. Uh, people are not interested in his message. And then most of the people who are there in Corinth are commercial people. You know, they're, they're doing business. They, they're making money. They're people from all over the place because of the seaport. And they're just the kind of people you know mostly in your life who figured out a way to make life work. If you just, you know, study hard and make good grades and invest in your IRA, a lot of things can go right for you in the world that we live in, right? And so you think, I'm, I'm all right. I, I'm a decent person. My life's pretty good. Um, I don't know if God's there or not, but I don't, it doesn't matter that much to me. I figure if he's there, he probably likes people like me because I'm nice. And um, I would imagine that's what most people there thought. They're cosmopolitan, they're rich, they're worldly wise, they're sexually indulgent, and nobody's bothering them about that. And they know what the real world is. They don't need some ethereal uh, religious talk from some weird-looking man from Tarsus, uh, some strange Jewish man. That just It's so unlikely that what he's saying really matters to me. It's so unlikely that what he's saying is actually the truth about God and the world that I'm, I'm going to ignore him before I even listen to him in most cases. So that's what he's up against. And he also knows that if anybody converts, it's going to blow their life up. Like, I mean, Crispus converts. He's the synagogue ruler. What does that cost him? Job. (laughs) All his friends are probably mad at him or think he's gone off the deep end or think he needs a physical because he's gone crazy because he's jumped on this new religion you know, he doesn't have uh, his uh, family probably doesn't understand what he's doing. His immediate family all convert with him. But that's a big deal to ask somebody who's a, whose job is the synagogue ruler to convert to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, you're just asking so much change in people's lives. And it's true here a lot, too. Right. You know, you have friends who think, man, if they converted, it would blow their life up. You know, for if you're asking people who are temple prostitutes for Aphrodite to become a Christian, you're asking a lot of them, a tremendous amount of change. If you're asking people whose whole life has been wrapped up in visiting uh, these prostitutes, you're asking for a pretty dramatic sexual revolution in people's lives if they come into the Christian faith. And so he knows that. And the people that he's asking to convert, he knows it's just, it costs a lot. It makes it scary. And it makes it scary for us. You have friends, you know, do you think, I want them to become Christians, but man, I, I can't imagine what all, what kind of revolution would come into their life if they did. And, um, and somehow that makes you feel like your appeal is less plausible to them. You think, gosh, I, I at least want to make sure I'm right about this before I ask them to blow their lives up this way and become Christians. And so it puts a pressure on you, a pressure on your faith that's scary. And that's pretty natural living where we live. It's part of why it's hard. And then third reason it's hard is that if you have a church in a place like that, the church is messy. Church is messy. It's not kind of what people want church to be. Paul stayed there. 
more than a year and a half in Corinth, which is way longer than he stayed most places. And, uh, but he stayed there, helping him get established, helping the church get up and going. So after a year and a half or so, that church is super mature. They're very solid. Um, they've got their building fund established. They've got their Christian school going, the Upward Basketball League's going, you know, so their kids don't have to play in the Aphrodite League. You know, they're all politically homogeneous. They, they all now vote the same way. Uh, they're walled off and pretty well protected from the problems of Corinth and living there. And uh, everything's pretty sound in that church by the time Paul leaves, right? He wrote a couple of letters to him, two of the letters we have in the Bible, and uh, they were a hot mess. I mean, a hot mess. They were very uh, socioeconomically diverse, and they weren't handling it well. Can't imagine why that was hard for them. But, uh, you know, they couldn't even get the Lord's Supper done without how much money you had making a pretty big difference in your experience of the Lord's Supper and things. They were... Um, they were really struggling to live together as a church. Paul had to write to them and explain to them something that you would think he was thinking, you should probably just know this. But he had to write to them at pretty great length to explain to them why prostitution was wrong. <laughs> this is wrong, okay? <laughs> prostitution, bad. And uh, he had to go through and explain to them, though, people who are used to having a tremendous wedge driven in between sex and intimacy that that wedge breaks sex and has to be removed. That sex and intimacy are joined by the Creator and His intention for them. And if you separate sex and intimacy, uh, you sin against God and yourself, and you break the good gift of sexuality that God gave us. So He has to go through and explain all that to them because it's not obvious to them. Uh, they had issues. They had a church discipline issue about... Uh, Incest in a family and not just like hidden, open situation that they had to deal with. And it, they needed instructions on how to deal with that. So they were suing each other in the public courts. Uh, they had problems with celebrity ministers. Um, I guess that's always more of a problem in a bigger city. But, you know, the hot preacher uh, created a following in Corinth. Apollos came and he was a better preacher than Paul. And so then people started dividing into camps over which preacher they liked, which, you know, is a problem. And then they were really confused a lot about how do we live in this culture around us that seems hostile to, to Christian, Christian values and ethics? Like, what's over accommodation? What's over defensiveness? Where do you draw the lines? Like, they're if all the meat comes from a butcher shop that's run by idolatrous people, can you eat the meat or not? Um, and like, what parties can I go to and not go to? Who do I have to separate from and not let my kids play with? And who can I let my kids play with? Those kind of things. And they couldn't figure that out. And I'm sympathetic to them. Those are hard questions. But the whole book that Paul's writing is to try to figure out how are you going to manage this messy church? And... Do you want your kids to go to a messy church like that? Especially if you're living in a culture where you already feel like it's pretty dangerous for them. Like they're going to hear a lot of different ideas. Their friends are going to have a lot of different ethics. If they go sleep over at somebody's house, 
They're going to hear and see things that, that you may not want them to see. You're nervous about that. You're trying to do your best to raise your kids well. Do you pick that kind of church to raise your kids in? And does that really help? And do you, and do you really want to go to a church after you fight the good fight all week that says you're just as sinful as your neighbors are and you need Jesus just as much as they do? Don't you want to hear, hey, guys, keep it up. Thanks for fighting the good fight. You're doing a great job. Instead of hearing you need Jesus' grace as much as the people up at the Temple of Aphrodite do? Well, my answer is yes. I want my kids in that kind of a church. <laughs> I don't want to go to a church where they know I need God's grace as much as the people in Aphrodite's temple need it. Because it's hard to have a church in a pagan city, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Paul loved this church. Like when he writes the letters, he's effusive. You're like, as you read the letter, you think, why is he so nice to them? Like, why does he like them so much? Because they're a mess. They're not doing it right. If you ever read the letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia, and the church in Galatia was an outstanding church. They were together. They, yeah, I'm sure their, their budget was balanced, and they were morally uncompromised, and they were doing it right. And when they did have arguments, it was over, you know, how uh, intensely are we going to keep God's law? <laughs> you know, that was the kind of fights they were having. It's a pastor's dream to go to a church like Galatia, except they were dead sterile. And Paul couldn't ever even get a nice tone talking to that good, respectable church. But when he talks to Corinth, you know, he can't wipe the grin off his face because he likes them and he likes what they're doing. Uh, he gets encouraged to... Stay the course and not be afraid in a Corinth. When Jesus speaks to him, verse 10, he says, uh, well, nine, don't, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. And he gives them three reasons. He says, one, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's what Jesus said in the Great Commission at the end of his life. You know, I want you to go and disciple the nations, spread the message about me to all the nations, and I'm with you to the ends of the earth. And he's reminding Paul here, I'm with you. You're not by yourself here. And he says, no one will attack you to harm you. And that has a shelf life, as it turns out, <laughs> for Paul. Everybody's been attacking him. The rest of his time in Corinth, he only has to go on trial once, but he gets out of it. Nobody hits him, apparently. So that's a really great stop for him <laughs> on this trip. He doesn't get hit. Um, and then the third reason is, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. And uh, this is God speaking in terms of his own plans and decrees and what he knows. But um, I don't have any question that where we live, we can say that with confidence that God has many people in this city, uh, some of whom aren't Christians yet, but who will be. And our being here can be instrumental for our friends and neighbors and people we haven't met yet uh, coming to find hope in Jesus. And it's worth sticking around. It's worth Trying not to be afraid, worth keeping on speaking, so we can be a part of that and experience it. This is a, a mission field for us, not a battlefield in Tucson. Know that. And it's not just for the clergy. Um, everybody gets drawn into a mission when you're somewhere like Corinth or Tucson. You know, Priscilla and Aquila wind up having a ton of influence. It's not just the clergy, it's not just the men, the women, too. I mean, uh, 
Priscilla has a huge role to play at the end of the chapter 18 in helping Apollos understand the Christian faith better so that he can use his preaching gifts uh, way more effectively than he was before. But everybody gets drawn into mission when you're in a place like this. You can sit back and let the clergy do it if you're in Birmingham or something, but not here. And so I think that's fun, too. One thing Paul had to tell him in the letter when he wrote him was, um, he said, look, I told you that to be a Christian, you know, it's very ethically demanding and that you need to separate yourself from people who are swindlers and adulterers, cheats and thieves and liars. He says, but I didn't mean people outside the church who are swindlers and adulterers and liars. Of course, you're not supposed to separate from them. You'd have to go out of the world. I meant if there are hypocritical believers who are behaving this way, then you need to police yourselves and put pressure on people inside the church. But I want you to be friends with the swindlers and the cheats and the liars and the adulterers that live around you. Of course, I want you to be connected to them. And uh, that's a pretty encouraging passage to me. That he wants us to be incarnational, to do what Jesus did, which is to go to the people that needed him, not the people who were already great, and to live with mercy among them. And if you do that, if we instead of building a fortress here where we can hide from Tucson, if we live incarnationally, we'll get to see Jesus at work. And it'll be pretty beautiful. I think it'll be really fun. It won't be boring. It won't be predictable. It won't be homogeneous. Uh, It won't be controllable, probably. Um, But it'll be a place where it's obvious to all of us that our only hope is in Jesus' grace. Because if you're in a church that's a mess, it's hard to get real proud of yourself and how great you're doing religiously. (laughs) If you're in a church that's a mess, you realize our only hope is what Jesus has done for us. That's, That's why I live here. I I moved here from Georgia, where I'm from, my home. I love Georgia. I really love Georgia. But I want to be here. Um, I'd so much rather be in a pagan place than in the Bible Belt, uh, because I want to be a part of a church like this. And uh, to be a minister here is really fun. It's really a treat and a privilege. So that's the encouragement is is don't be afraid. And go on speaking, not not because you're safe, but because Jesus is with you and he has many people in this city. Let's pray.